it's a kind of a two-stage thing, although not that clean necessarily. Uh, this morning, I'm going to do two uh, shorter sermons, uh, one on putting off self and one putting on self before we go to lunch. Uh, I'll begin the first one by uh, talking about what the Bible says. Uh, the Bible says that if we don't do this one thing, uh, we deceive ourselves. And uh, you remember Jeremiah 17, 9, that says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Um, who can understand it? I'm sort of having to readjust the last two presentations. I spoke to a translator, and I keep being tempted to stop and wait for the translator. I don't, don't have to do that now. <clears throat> the Bible also says if we don't do this thing, this one thing, the truth is not in us. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, remember? So if we don't do this one thing, Jesus is not in us. Thirdly, the Bible says, if we don't do this thing, we make God out to be a liar. If we don't do this one thing, we're basically saying to God, I don't believe you, you're lying. Fourthly, it says, if we don't do this one thing, his word has no place in our lives. And Scripture it talks so much about the Word of God living in us. Jesus said, the Word I've spoken, our life, spirit and life, just all sorts of stuff. So if we don't do this one thing, we block Jesus' Word in our lives. And fifthly, if we don't do this thing, we claim we have not sinned. How many of you claim that you have not sinned? Right. No one claims that. Do you know what the one thing is? How many of you know what the one thing is? Let me see hands. These people know, but they're not ready. You know? What it is it? That, yes, but it's a little uh, specifically, uh, what does it say we need to do to die to self for these things not to happen? Turn to 1 John. 1 John. 1 John 1. 1 John 1, 8 to 10, and notice carefully all five of these things occur in this text, and one of them, actually the last one, occurs twice. 1 John 1, 8 to 10, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Now, I think no one claims to be without sin, but the text seems to clearly imply if I don't confess and ask forgiveness, by default I'm claiming to be without sin. Those five things are fairly significant, wouldn't you say? They're, they're, they're very significant. If I could get the slides back anyway, and it, you know, there they are. We deceive ourselves. Truth isn't in us. We say, God, you're lying. The, the word confess really means to just agree with God. It means to just agree. When I confess, I'm basically agreeing, okay? When I don't confess, by default, I'm disagreeing with God and, and calling him a liar. It's, it's, a fairly, it's a fairly loaded concept, isn't it? Proverbs 28, 13, and 14, uh, I'll just quote it to you. Um, it, it says, uh, if he who conceals his sins does not prosper, 
But whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Blessed is the man who always fears the Lord, but he who hardens his heart by concealing his sin does not prosper. This is a fairly simple instruction, isn't it? But very hard to follow. Would you go with that? It's just very, very hard to follow. A few years ago, I ran into an article. This thing's not going. Let's try the next slide. I, maybe you need to push it there. <clears throat> I read an article. Oh, still not coming. Uh, by Jolene Kapakoka. It's a hard name. There you see it up there. A better way to say I'm sorry, you could Google it. I checked it recently, and you can Google it and read the whole article. It's a wonderful story. She was a teacher of kids, and when, when kids would hurt each other and, and do wrong things to each other, she'd sit them down and say, now say sorry. And so they'd say, I'm sorry. But they didn't mean it in their hearts. You know what I mean? They were just going through the motion because the kid was forcing, they, the teacher was forcing them to do it. So she developed a process that I want to show you. But before I show you that, let me just talk a minute about sin. Sin is not just the half a dozen juicy ones, adultery and drinking and, and stealing and murder. Uh-uh. The word sin simply means to miss the mark. The Greek word, harmatia, when hunters would go out, and prepare for hunting season and put up a target and shoot their bow and arrow. If someone shot an arrow and he missed the target, one of his friends might shout out, Harmatia, you sinned. You missed the mark. It's just, it's just missing the mark with Jesus. It's not, it's not the biggies. And I would say, and I think it's biblically faithful to say, whenever I am unchristlike, whenever I'm unchristlike, I have sinned. Would you go with that, or is that too strong a statement? Whenever I'm not like Jesus. If I snap up my wife Sabbath morning when we're getting ready to go to church, how many of you think I've sinned? I see a lot of hands not raised. <laughs> you don't want to admit it because you did it this morning, right? <laughs> Sabbath morning is a hard morning. Hey, I mean, <clears throat> you know... Eating a piece of forbidden fruit is a Mickey Mouse sin. Taking a cookie from the cookie jar when you're not supposed to as a kid. Hey, being unlike Christ, and it's not just behavior. That's something else we should say about sin. I might be right, but the way I'm right might be very sinful. Would you agree with that? See? I might be right. I mentioned a line earlier today. We do a lot, if not most, of our sinning when we're right, and right is not happening. Then we get all exercised. And because we're right, it gives, us the, it gives us the right to treat people any way we want, which is crazy. It justifies being unchristlike because we're right. And it should. Okay, let's hand out this sheet. I want you all to see this. I'm going to be just as nuts and bolts uh, practical as I can possibly be. And we're going to look at a four-step process, which was developed by this teacher uh, on, um, uh, on, on confessing sin and asking for forgiveness. And this is very important, um, uh, especially three of the steps, uh, the, the uh, first, second, and, and, and third step. 
Um, and let me just say this while they're passing out this sheet. Do you know if the children, I see children here, if the children see mom and dad being unkind to each other, snapping on each other, being irritable, just in little ways, if they witness the sin, they should witness the confession and apology and request for forgiveness. Are you listening up there? Okay. So if, so if they, the, the children see too much, just little, little irritable sorts of thing, and they, they don't see mom and dad making up, if they even do make up. Okay? Here we go. We're still passing sheets out, I see. We're, we're, we're getting close. Um, and I think I would say that always we confess to God. And of course, if any other person is involved, we confess to that person. Number Step number one is I just simply saying, I'm sorry, I, and you finish the sentence. Too often when we apologize, we'll just say, I'm sorry. We don't name what we did. I'm sorry I said this. I'm sorry I had this attitude. I'm sorry I did this. You name very specifically, you name your sin. Listen, we're... What we're doing is we're putting off the old self. We're humbling ourselves. We're dying to self. Every time I say I'm sorry for whatever, will you, will you forgive me? We'll get into that. I, I'm really surrendering and I'm opening the door. Did you notice that the text we read said, if you confess your sins, he does two things. He forgives our sins, we know that, and then we don't notice the second thing. And he purifies us from all unrighteousness. When I confess, he's forgiving me, but I'm dying and surrendering to self so he can fill me with his pure, righteous life. It's a twofold thing, a very important thing. All right, I'm sorry for, name your sins, name your attitudes, whatever it is, name it. Number two, this was wrong because it must have made you feel. And then you finish it. It felt hurt, betrayed, scared. When you yelled at the kids, I, Daddy and my, when my, Mommy and Daddy were fighting in front of you, we're sorry for doing that. It, we realize it must really scare you, and, and, and we ask you to forgive us. It, it means so much. This second step, most don't even know about, don't think about. But if I just say, I'm sorry for what you did, will you forgive me? And if it's been a fairly significant hurt, it feels unfinished. It's like I haven't acknowledged what I've put you through. Or if you ask me to forgive you and it's been a real hit and you just say, well, you forgive me. Boy, and it makes such a difference when you say, I know this hurt you. Uh, I, I know it really stayed with you and how difficult it's been and I just feel bad about that. I'm sorry for hurting you this way. Please, will you forgive me? It's a... It's a, it's a very significant step, and uh, already some of you are thinking, there's no way I can do this. And, and you know what your problem is? It's real, real simple. It's pride. That's all. Just pride. And some fear, probably. Let me tell you, if you're not used to doing this face-to-face, -face, let me encourage you. You can do it by writing a note. By just writing a note. The third step, I have to confess, she used with the students a lot as she spelled this out, and it was very helpful. I have not used it a lot. Um, 
So I can't say much about the significance of the third step. I put it out there because she put it out there, and it can be helpful at times. The fourth step is huge. Will you forgive me? So often, when things happen, big or small, we just say, I'm sorry. Maybe even I'm sorry for whatever. But if I don't ask your forgiveness, it's, it's incomplete. It's incomplete. Are you, are you following me on this? You see, I need to ask your forgiveness and, and place myself at your mercy. Place myself at your mercy so that uh, you can forgive me and say so and complete it. Now, the person may not be ready to forgive you. And it puts them on the spot if you ask them when they're still smarting. You understand what I'm saying? That's why another reason it's really helpful to write a note, include at least the three steps, first, second, and third, and leave it for them to find when you're not around so they can in their own time think about it and offer forgiveness when they're ready and it's really genuine rather than saying, yeah, I forgive you, but they're still hurting and smarting over it. You follow me? So this is, if, if we don't confess... What happens is these little things just build up and they stay between us. We may not know it. We're so used to settling for way too little in our relationships. I'm sure some of you can't even imagine doing this for every little thing. Let me tell you, if you start doing it, you won't do those little things near as often. It's too painful to ask for forgiveness and to confess your sins. You follow me on this? I mean, this humbles you. You die to self. Jesus' life fills us more. You're more cautious and careful. You see? It's, it just it has all sorts of wonderful ripple effects. Now, there's the other side of this that we ought to mention, uh, you know, in, uh, and that is, uh, in Mark, in Mark 11, 25 and 26, it says, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, God isn't a grudging God. God's not saying, well, if you're not going to forgive, I'm not going to forgive you. Said, no. It's just, if I hold things against you, if I hold anything against you, I'm putting up a wall and blocking God's forgiveness from coming into me. Do you see? So there's not just I need to ask you forgiveness when I sin against you. I need to forgive you when you sin against me, even if you don't ask for it. Shall I say it again? I need to forgive you even if you don't ask for it. Because most people don't, they don't even understand what we're talking about. I need to forgive you even if you don't ask for it, which means I simply turn the hurt I've experienced over to Christ at the cross and let his peace fill me and I wish you no ill will. I wish you no ill will, but I need to forgiveness. Forgiveness is a one-way street. Reconciliation is a two-way street. And when I ask you to forgive, you may not forgive me. You know, I hope you will, but you might not. Always we can forgive and we can ask forgiveness. And usually if we go through the process, there will be reconciliation. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to fill us and purify us. 
I, I'm just curious, how many of you are even tempted to do this now, to try this? I want to see some hands. All right. How many of you that raise your hands do it regularly? Not near as many of you. I love it. No, I love this. Oh, this is wonderful. It means that the Holy Spirit's speaking, and you're ready to grow and move on. Do you know, hey, I love, I saw this definition of renewal in the bulletin. Did you read it? Renewal, an instance of resuming an activity or state after an interruption. When I sin, I want the Holy Spirit to stop me, to interrupt me, to draw me to confession to God first and ask forgiveness there and give him peace. And then I go back and ask you forgiveness and we're, we're still going. Renewal is having somebody inter, something interrupt us and change us and continue to move us forward. We have just talked about a very simple profoundly beautiful and very powerful specific details step-by-step process that we could follow so that we don't deceive ourselves so Christ stays in us so God speaks the truth so his word has a place in our lives and we no longer claim to be without sin I just, I I wish I lived here. I could hear testimonies later about the experiences you are having do this. If you do this one thing, it's amazing what will happen. Let's have a song from the choir.
If I could raise my daughters again, and I can't, they're too old to listen to me now, <clears throat> I would work more on their thought life than on their behavioral life. Because our behavioral life comes out of our thought life. When the girls were small, I could force them to behave certain ways. That doesn't mean their thought life was in harmony with what I was requiring of them. You follow me? The older they got, the less power I had. But if our thought life is right, everything will be right. Have you ever given consideration to what Jesus thought about when he was here on earth? Have you, hey, talk back at me. What do you think Jesus thought about, you know, when he was just walking and, or just thinking or whatever, or woke up early in the morning and hadn't got, what do you think his thought life went to? Pardon? His, went to God, his father. Probably that was a lot of it, don't you think? I, I, Jesus, when you read the New Testament, Jesus constantly taught about his father. And in fact, he said, what I'm doing is what my father does. What I'm speaking is what my father speaks. In John 12, there's, there's this incredible verse where Jesus said, um, for I did not speak of my own accord, but the father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. Have you ever seen that line? Because it's not just what we say, it's how we say things. In fact, how we say things may be more important than what we say. Those who have studied communication and kind of graphed it out in a circle, about 90% of what we communicate are not words. It's facial tone, it's volume, it's attitude. Only 10% of what we communicate is words. So Jesus said, the father who sent me commanded me not only what to say, but how to say it. And he said, I know that his eternal, his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the father's taught me to say. Jesus was just consumed thinking about his father and talking about his father and telling people that he represented the father and that everything he did and said was directions he was getting from the father. Wouldn't you love that? I mean, that would be a place to be, wouldn't it? Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, I think this is in Matthew 12, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person brings good things out of the good stored up in her or him. The evil person brings evil out of the evil stored up in her or him. What comes out of our mouth absolutely is a report on what we're storing up in ourselves. Uh, a line that uh, I, I like and have used for quite a while. Uh, let me try this one. See if this works. Yeah. Oh, just missed it. There we go. What gets the mind gets us. And what gets us is reported in our thoughts, attitudes, words, and actions. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We surrender 
our sinful self through confession and repentance and all of that, we receive his life by thinking and directing the mind towards him and his words. I think putting on the new life, putting on the life of Christ, primarily centers in dwelling on his word, thinking his thoughts, just, just getting wrapped up in what he says. And if we don't, we'll be left to our own thoughts and ways. And Jesus said, uh, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is Isaiah 55. Neither are your ways my ways. You've heard that, haven't you? Now, have you noticed the details? As high as the heavens are above the earth. That's quite a lot, you know? Quite a lot. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. His thinking, his ways are a universe apart from our ways and our life will become more and more like Jesus as we fill our minds with him. Uh, just some other verses in, um, in, in Proverbs uh, 20, no, in Proverbs 4, there are these words. My son, pay attention to what I say. Listen carefully to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them when you're in your heart. And here's the promise. Now, did you just hear the first part? Here you go. P listen carefully uh, to what I say. Keep these words in your heart. Don't let them out of your sight. For they are life to those who find them and health to a person's whole body. This text says that if we get wrapped up in God's word, thinking his thoughts and his ways, it will not only affect our spiritual life, it will affect the very health of our body. That's, that's pretty significant, wouldn't you say? And the text says by, ends by saying, above all else, guard your heart. For it is the wellspring of life. It's the foundation of life. We just want to guard, guard, guard our hearts with his word. Now, let me go back to the Isaiah 58. The Isaiah 58, um, right after he says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and, your, and so on. He says, as the rain and snow down, come down from heaven and water the earth, uh, no, and do not return to it. Diane and I noticed the contrast of the land around here compared to up where we live in Washington. It's a fair contrast, quite a contrast, because we get lots of rain and snow, and, and the beauty and the, I mean, the results are amazing. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it, without watering the earth and making a bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So, which just like that happens, so is what? Do you know the next phrase? So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It won't return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it and you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And it goes on. 
This text says there is a universal difference between our thoughts and ways and God's thoughts and ways. This text says when the word, when the word is heard and received, just like when the earth receives rain and snow, when we receive the word, wonderful things happen. His word is accomplished. We receive peace and joy. That's an amazing promise, isn't it? Again, quite simple. All we have to do is think his thoughts and his ways. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4 says, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary. We get so fixated on this and that and the other. Well, I've been preaching the boring parts of it. You've been thinking of other stuff. You've been thinking of all sorts of earthly things, right? Running through your head. All that stuff's temporary. All that stuff's temporary. Colossians 3, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, not on earthly things. Set your minds on things above, where God is seated at the right hand of God. For you died, self died. Self-life is preoccupied, just preoccupied with self and wants and desires, self-defensiveness, self-protectiveness, all that stuff. And the self-life just doesn't work. There's a text in Romans that says the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. And the reason we're having such a hard time is we're trying to obey God with our sinful nature, and our sinful nature doesn't like God. We need to die to self. Instead of trying harder, we need to surrender and die more fully so God's life can take over. And one of the primary ways that God's life gets more and more space in our head is as we store up his word in our lives. Just, just store it up. Now, Ann Vascomp has this phenomenal quote. Uh, see if we can get it. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, you may not be able to read that. That's pretty small writing. Here, here we go. Listen to this. This is um, uh, this statement. When I read it, just blew me away because I never thought of it this way. You know, you've heard you you heard people say the reason God gave us two ears and one tongue is so we'll listen twice as much as we talk. Some of us don't do that, but anyway, kind of a funny thing. Ambosca says the only person we ever have to talk more than we listen to is ourselves. We always need to talk to ourselves more than we listen to ourselves because our souls need a truth coach or it will be a lie factory. You, negative things happen. You get miserable. You get wrapped up in them. You think about things. I mean, how e our minds left to itself, our minds left to themselves will be lie factories producing all this negative thinking all this blah, 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 blah. She goes on. Uh, Frank Christina, she said, found the lie snake slithering into her cerebellum because if you don't barricade the thought door shut on the lie snakes, they will wile into your mind and wrap around membranes and hiss lies out like they're an assembly line of toxicity. That's quite a load, isn't it? The one person we need to talk to more than we listen to is ourself. So that whenever there are thoughts that are not in harmony with his word, we need 
to absolutely stop and block that train of thoughts by speaking truth to ourselves and not listening to that crazy stuff that goes on in our mind. Hey, this, this, whole, this one really blew me away. This is a bit of a read, but I think it's very listenable and worth, worth hearing. Uh, how many of you have not heard of John Erickson Tata? Any of you not heard of? Okay, hey, a few of you. Um, when John Erickson Tata was a late te- a teenager, she uh, took a dive into some water, hit something, broke her neck. She's been a pro- quadriplegic ever since. Uh, she's well known for her speaking um, and her writing. Uh, she paints even with a, 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 a paintbrush in her teeth because she can't do it with her hands. She's over 70 now. She's even had breast cancer. I mean, this woman has been through it. You got it? All right, here we're listening to Johnny Erickson Tata. It's no fun getting older, but it can be a heart-pumping adventure. And I'm saying that after five decades in a wheelchair. So she wrote this probably when she was 68 or 69 because this happened when she was 18 or 19. Like, how did I reach 50 years of quadriplegia in such good spirits? Now, I could rattle off the many liters of water I drink or that I limit red meat and guzzle apple cider vinegar twice a day, but that's not half of it. I live not only on bread, water, and more. I live on the promises of God, really. When it comes to God's promises, I can't be just a hearer. I must be a doer. My paralysis makes it so, like what happened last Monday morning. Now, listen to this story. Because I suffer from severe scoliosis, I often wake up with huge pain in my hip and back. But on this morning, it was off the charts. Barely out of bed, my spirits were already sagging. My girlfriend got me dressed and ready and wheeled into my van where my husband tied down my wheelchair. We started driving the 101 freeway, (laughs) in this part of the world, to Johnny and Friends. That's the name of her company. But the whole time, I just wanted to ask Ken to turn around and take me home. I was miserable. Are you, you know, think about her thought life now. Her pain is causing her misery. She's down emotionally. She's discouraged. She's depressed. Her thoughts are not taking her to a good place. Usually when Ken drives me to work, we pray together in the van, but I had no strength for that, nor did I have strength to sing hymns, which I usually do while driving. This is an experience from a lady who is used to talking to herself a lot, even praying with her husband on the way to work and singing hymns, okay? But not this morning. I just couldn't let myself go down a dark, grim path to depression. I whimpered, God, where is the comfort you promise? And just then, a Bible verse popped into my mind because her thought life had been there, and she remembered this. She had trained to think Scripture. And so Scripture was right there for God to remind her, the Holy Spirit in her to take that Scripture she'd taken and to remind her. Psalm 119.50, my comfort in suffering is this. Your promises remove my life. Johnny, there's your comfort, the Spirit seemed to whisper. Lean on God's promises, okay? It sounded trite and theological, especially when you're feeling miserable, right? See, the the thing is, we've got to learn to talk to ourselves when it's the last thing we want to do. We'd rather enjoy the pleasure of our pity parties. Aren't they fun? Pity parties are such fun, you see? 
the last thing we want to do is talk truth to ourselves when all that other stuff's consuming us. But since God brought it up, I decided to act on his suggestion. Okay, God, I'm going to hold you to it. I'going to believe that your promises actually can rescue me. So for the rest of the way down 101, I loudly recited every Bible promise I could recall. And she could recall a bunch of them because when she wasn't on the spot in her quiet time daily or when she was just had nothing special to do early, she was thinking and talking scripture to herself. Scripture was readily at hand. It may not be through memorization. It may be on cards. There's lots of ways to talk scripture to yourself. I dug them up from Sunday school, from faded memories of verses on yellow uh, uh, three by five cards. It's promised it tumbled into my mind. I proclaimed it insistently enough so that my husband sitting in the driver's seat could hear. He kept giving me funny looks in the rearview mirror. I can believe he did. I would blurt out, Lord, you promised that you're my ever-present help in trouble. And you promised that your grace is more than sufficient for my every need. You assure that you'll never leave or forsake me. You promise to be the one who will go out and fight for me. I gathered more steam. (laughs) She is talking to herself and refusing to listen to herself. I gathered more steam, insisting in the book of Joshua, tells me that you'll be with me wherever I go. You promise you are a refuge for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. You say you will counsel me and watch over me and guide me by your righteous right hand. You'll sustain me and be my mighty fortress. You'll invite me to cast my cares on you, for you never let me fall. Listen to her talking to herself. Your name's a strong tower. As the righteous run into it, they're safe. Jesus, you tell me I'm safe. By the time we arrived at Johnny and Friends, a different person wheeled out of the van. Something had changed. My pain was still throbbing. Notice that. Her physical, when it comes to physical illness, pain is not a choice. Misery is. You might want to think about that. You may have no option over your pain. You have a choice as to whether to be miserable or not, deciding on what you say to yourself rather than listen to yourself. My pain was still throbbing, but I had courage. Ah, I had a new degree of faith that was stretching my heart plus a smile, and heaven strength sent strength to endure. I wheeled up the ramp to my office, happily singing worship songs. I must have been loud because people in their workstations started humming along. It was crazy, but God's promises had renewed my life as though each verse infused with life-given blood into my spiritual veins. I knew God would come through, but really, like this? So filled with faith that I no longer felt defeated? This is a miracle. This is a miracle of God's grace. Jesus said, the words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates It penetrates us. When I am in this word, because the author of these words live in us, the Holy Spirit, when I receive these words that he inspired, he is there to empower them into life like no other word. I am a mystic when it comes to Scripture. I think 
God's word is miraculously powerful and life-changing by dwelling on it, receiving it, talking to myself. God, you are sweet. I send it under my breath. Thank you. Don't ask me how it works or how the Holy Spirit does it, but when we do the, when we do the word, actually do it, something splits the seams of heaven and pours out a shower of blessings. Like in Psalm 18, 6, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. You notice she in the car wasn't just kind of sweetly quoting scripture. She was shouting those scripture, and she was shouting truth to herself and said, this is what you will believe. This is what you will hear. I refuse to listen to thoughts of depression and discouragement. I talk truth so that my mind will not become a lie factory. Are you getting this? This is so wonderful. There are scores of verses that say the same. If you hurt, cry out to the Lord. Cry out. Don't read it demurely. Say it like you mean business. He loves to put his word to the test. True, you may come across a little like a fool for Christ in front of your husband or co-worker, but God wants to see how seriously you take his promise. When it comes to his promise, don't you dare doubt them. There's a text in James which is too far from me and I can't remember it now, but remember it says, but he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man will not receive anything for the Lord or something. It's, uh, there, it's very dangerous to doubt God. I don't think it's dangerous to ask questions of God and to have questions and to ask them lots and, and so on. But if you dwell on your questions so much that they begin to turn into personally doubting of God, we're on dangerous ground. So those of you that have the kind of mind, and those are good minds, that tend to question God and need answers, be cautious. Don't listen to the questions more than you listen to the truth that you can believe about God that you're talking to yourself. True, you may, okay, don't think God cannot change your heart if not your circumstances. It's what happens when you grab the word by the horn, wrestle into the dirt of all that it means to be human. That's the stuff of which courage is made. William Carey once said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. Your future is bright. It's very simple, again, and very, very challenging. Because we may not be in the habit of living a lot in God's word, of knowing it, of putting it on cards and carrying it around with us and looking it over and over. Do you know how much, how many moments of discretionary time you have every day? A bunch of them driving in the car, waiting in line at the post office, waiting in line at the grocery stop, waiting for this. Hey, it's amazing how much of the day we had the luxury of thinking about what we choose to think about. I cannot, I can't over-exaggerate based on his word and the testimony of a bunch of us that what will happen if you chart choosing to making, thinking, and speaking God's word to yourself, your number one project for the rest of your life, and what will happen, and the ripple effects are absolutely amazing. In the Message Bible, you know, Eugene Peterson wrote the Message Bible. He died this week, 
at 85. Uh, I've been reading lots of articles and people's comments. He was a remarkable man. It was funny. <clears throat> After he wrote the Message Bible, um, why it began to sell like mad. And he said to one of his friends, he said, I'm a college professor and a pastor. I don't know what to do with all this money. He had sold 20 million copies of the message. He was getting rich, and he didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> he, his mind just was not fixed there. Anyway, he translates Matthew 7, 24 to 27 this way. The words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you are like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach, and when a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. What gets the mind gets us, and what gets us is reported in our thoughts, attitudes, words, and actions. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person brings good things out of the good stored up in them. The evil person brings evil out of the evil stored up in them. I just hold before you this book of life. This book of life. Things, I would just, I'd like to have a prayer over all of this. All right? Let's pray together. Lord, we've listened to your word today, and you promise that the words you've spoken to us are spirit and they are life. You said that through the disciple John. Thank you for these promises. Forgive us for. Uh, fixing our eyes on things that are temporary. Today, we want to just surrender that. I want to, in fact, give a moment, just a moment now of silence where you say to Jesus, I surrender all my life to you. Just in your heart, do that now. And then say to Jesus, I commit to confessing sin. And Lord, give me the strength to constantly receive your word and your life so that's what comes out of me. Paul's prayer in Ephesians is wonderful. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love,
may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And now, Lord, to you who are able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen.
and let's have a prayer. Our Father God in heaven, we thank you so much for all the blessings that you've given us through this day. Thank you for the message that we have heard. We pray that we will take the word that we have heard in our heart. May we will think and choose you. Bless us now. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Please keep in mind that we have the fellowship lunch starting now. So just come up to the second floor and to um, enjoy our fellowship together. And we have our meeting continuing on at 2 o'clock. So come back to this place at 2 o'clock. We'll have deacons come forward and dismiss everyone. If you could have the deacons come forward so we could dismiss people. And remember that we have child care provided as well. Please drop your children off at 2 o'clock upstairs. They're in good hands. And uh, come back here at 2 o'clock for the second part of the meeting. If you could have the deacons, please come forward so that we could dismiss everyone. Everyone, have a happy Sabbath.